Thank you, Miss Lori. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. As we are continuing to go through the book of Matthew, um, we've noticed a few months ago that we're rounding the corner and are in the final section of this book as Jesus Christ is setting his heart to go to Jerusalem to die for sinners. And in Matthew chapter 18, we have one of the discourses, one of Christ's teaching sections. And the whole of this teaching section is dealing with how we deal with one another in the church of God. And so please stand with me. We're going to be reading today from Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 through 20. But we're going to be focusing today primarily on verses 10 through 14 as we see not the method of church discipline, but the the reason or the attitude of heart that we should have in this terrible, um, terrible and, and great thing that we are called to do. So, this is the Word of God today. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And now we have the method of seeking these sheep in verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Please pray with me. Father, we come before you to your holy word, and God, this is such a weighty chapter, a weighty paragraph In my sinfulness, Lord, I don't know if I would ever choose to preach on such a thing, but uh, I am grateful for your word, Lord. And I'm thankful, God, that you put things in front of our face for us to consider things that we we shy away from. God, I pray that you would help us today to hear your word as it's truly spoken, God. I pray that you'd help me to preach, not myself, not my opinion, but what your word says. I pray you give me liberty to preach to your people and to worship you as I preach and that your people um, and I would grow in love for one another and love for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Considering the topic that we have today and trying to figure out a way to introduce this in a way that might grab attention to our hearts, one of the things that came to me was that there are many doctrines in Holy Scripture that have a positive and negative element, or they're on two extremes of one another, but they have to be taken together for you to understand them as a whole. Maybe a little more obscurely, me and Brother Joey have been recently talking a lot about the regulative principle of worship. 
That is, that God tells us what He wants us to do in worship, and we are to do only that thing. What He commands is right, what He doesn't command is wrong to be done in worship. But that principle, as biblical as it might be, must be taken with the third commandment that God gives in Exodus 20, which is we're to worship God sincerely, not taking the name of the Lord in vain. And so if you take just the regulative principle, you can have an external form of worship that has no spirit to it. But if you take only the spiritual aspect of it and what feels good, you are left worshiping God perhaps in a way that He is not pleased. Or we could consider the law and the gospel. That throughout the Scripture, God gives us good and holy commands that is gracious for us. The law by itself is good. It teaches us how to live. But it must never be taken apart from the gospel. The gospel shows us how we're forgiven of the laws we've broken and the power that God gives for us to obey His laws anew. And what I'm trying to impress upon you here today, there are many portions of Scripture that you have to take the whole of Scripture to understand the part. And today, that is no less true. As we're venturing in on dealing with church discipline, a a terrible thing that churches have to engage in from time to time, we must consider not just the method that Christ gives us in verses 15 through 20, we must consider the attitudes and the reasons for seeking after people in discipline. And I hope that will become clear to us as we see here in this passage that Jesus plainly tells us that we are not to despise one another. And He further defines that. If we refuse to seek after those who stray, we are despising one another. The purpose of this text for us here today, I have is twofold. First, I believe the main point of this text, if we read it, is to expose the exceeding sinfulness of despising one another. I think that that's the the entire purpose of these five verses put together. But secondly, I want us to see that we are not only to see the exceeding sinfulness of this, but that we would prepare ourselves through gospel means to seek after one another. Okay, So it is to expose our heart, but also to propel us beyond that, that we would seek after one another with true and good intentions. And so, first, you must and I must, we must be convinced of the sinfulness of despising one another. Now, we see this in verses 10 through 14, and I'm just going to read verse 10 once again. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And these words draw us back to the context of what we've been speaking about. All of chapter 18 is taken up with how we deal with one another in the church. And Jesus is preparing His disciples here. that He's about to leave the earth. He's about to be away from them. His omnipotent, omniscient wisdom is no longer going to be given to them face to face as it was now. And He's preparing His disciples. And we see with this word little ones that we're drawn back to the previous context that the disciples in verse 1 were puffed up with spiritual pride and competing with one another to see who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And in doing that, they showed themselves to be contrary to what Christ would have us to be. That is, as little ones. 
to emulate children in their status and position, to put ourselves in the lowest rung, so to speak, and to see other people as more valuable and more honorable than ourselves. Christ goes past that to tell them not only are they to become like little children, but they're to avoid being stumbling blocks to other little children. That is, other disciples who come like little children to Christ, they're to make sure that they do not live or teach in such a way as to cause stumbling for those little children. Because the greatest of threats are given to those who would teach false doctrine and cause others to fall into sin, or who would act in such a way that would cause that to happen. Furthermore, the future context shows us this as well. Verses 15 through 20, as we've already discussed, we have the method of the church using the keys of the kingdom. That is to welcome sinners in through belief in the gospel and to shut those out who would deny the gospel by word or deed. And then, finally, in verses 21 through 35, Jesus tells us to cultivate a forgiving heart toward one another. Knowing that the Father has forgiven us such an immense debt that we owe to Him that could never be paid in eternity in hell, we ought to forgive one another. We should not be holding grudges against one another. And we see that all the surrounding context of the paragraph we're dealing with today, we see that Jesus is absolutely intimately and extravagantly and passionately concerned with how we deal with one another in the church It does away with our American individualism that tells us it does not matter how I deal with other brothers and sisters. It's only how I feel that I am in relation with Jesus in my heart. Jesus is interested in how we deal with one another. And our paragraph, verses 10 through 14, I want us to see is on the very same trajectory. The very same trajectory. Now, the thing that should be impressed upon our minds to the fullest extent is that this paragraph cannot be taken apart from church discipline, nor can we talk about church discipline, I believe, without considering this paragraph. It's essential for us. Now, it's unusual for us to consider it here, but I want us to see how intimately connected this section in verses 10 through 14 is with church discipline. Notice with me, it's clear in the parable that Jesus Christ gives in verses 12 and 13, where this Jesus asks this question, who of any shepherd would have of his hundred sheep? One go astray and not go after it. Notice the word that's used three times is the word astray or gone astray. Two times in verse 12, Christ says that these sheep are those who have gone astray. And once in verse 13, which implies very clearly to us, doesn't it, brothers and sisters, that these were once a part of the flock of God. And now they've wandered off. And we see in context into some error, some sin. And so they must be gotten back. But more fully... We not only see that this is connected to discipline because the sheep go astray in the parable. Notice in verse 14 how it's connected with the Father's will. It says, so. Right after this parable about the sheep going astray being rescued. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The will of the Father is connected with this parable. 
that God wants us to go after sheep. Just as Brother Joey read in Ezekiel chapter 33 today, we are to go after those who stray from the truth, whether they hear us or not. Whether they hear us or not. The proper motivation is given in this text and the proper method given next week. Jesus warns us here against despising our brothers and sisters in a very particular way. We're warned against not despising them in every way, but in this text, we're warned about not despising our brothers and sisters by refusing to seek after them when they go astray. And what impresses me about this, if we consider our own hearts, is how far we fall short of this. Christ gives no excuse in the human heart of why we should despise brothers and sisters who go astray. Those who would come into the church, who would join the church, who would confess the gospel of Jesus Christ and leave the church either in doctrinal or personal sin, how far we fall short of this. But how far do we fall short of it even in the church? People that don't go astray in our lives. Now, if we were to take this text, you should not despise your brothers and sisters. I would just ask you here today, who would disagree with that? There might be a few sinful, atheistic hearts in the world that would say, no, it's right and good for me to despise my brothers. But I would propose to you today that if we would do a thought experiment, I don't know if Facebook does this anymore, but there used to be polls that were given on Facebook. If we were able to send this poll out to every person of the human race, seven and a half billion people, should you despise your brothers and sisters? I bet we'd get close to a 100% response rate that says, no. We shouldn't despise our brothers and sisters. We would have exceedingly high agreement about that. But it's when we come to the definition of what it means to despise our brothers and sisters that we get into trouble, don't we? Just as almost everybody in the world would say we ought to love one another as we love ourselves, but when God starts to define what that love looks like in the Ten Commandments in particular, that's when we start to back off a little bit and say, well, I don't know about that. Here, Jesus' definition convicts us, and I mean us, not sinners outside the wall, but all of us sitting here, that we fall far short of Jesus' command and ideal given in this text. As Jesus tells us the law here, that we cannot despise one another, that we must seek after one another, even as God seeks after us, the function of the law is seen, that it exposes the unrighteousness of each and every one of our hearts. I'd ask you to turn with me to Romans chapter 7 quickly. Romans chapter 7. And in this text, as you're turning there, Paul is trying to give an apologetic for the law. That the law is not evil. The law is not sinful. Rather, the law functions in a very particular way that it it exposes sin in the human heart. Notice. In particular, verses 12 and 13. Notice what Paul says. Right after he says that sin deceived him and killed him, he says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Just as we read our text today and we say, this command Jesus gives not to despise one another, it's holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then, Paul asks, bring death to me? No, by no means. 
It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. I want us to think about briefly what the Apostle Paul is saying there. He's saying that when we hear the law of God and we say in our hearts, that law is good, it's holy, and it's righteous. Everybody should agree with that law. And then we see that we transgress that law. It shows that our sin is exceedingly sinful. Does that make sense? It's as if we were driving down Main Street in Arlington and perhaps we saw a, a sign that says, go 10 miles per hour because this is the busiest time of day for children to be passing through. Right? And we say, that's a... That's a good, a righteous, and an honest law. And we see somebody speed by in a semi-truck going 90 miles an hour. That sign, it further convicts the sinner that it's bad because he knows the law is good. right? And this is what our text does here today. What Paul says about the law in general in Romans chapter 7, we can say about the law in particular in Matthew chapter 18. It is Beyond wicked to despise those who God loves. To despise the children of God. To despise man in whole, but especially those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the whole of this text is meant and designed to show us through the mouth of our Savior that to despise one another is sinful beyond measure. It's not just something, well, I've made a mistake, and this is what all humans do. We struggle with this. Christ wants us to see that this is exceedingly sinful. And he does it, I would propose, by doing three different things. First, Christ exposes the sinfulness and the exceeding sinfulness of despising your brother and sister by contrasting our despising with the love of higher beings. With the love of higher beings, greater beings. Specifically, the angels. We see. Notice, I'm going to read again. In verse 10, Christ says, For, so don't despise little ones, because for, I tell you in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus here takes us out of ourselves from our own sinful thinking so that we would contemplate beings that are higher than us and spiritual realities in order that we would wake up that we would wake up. Now, if we consider all angels that were ever created, we must confess, as the Bible does, that these beings are greater than us. They're greater than us in a number of ways. They're greater in being. They are immortal in and of themselves. They have no part that is capable of death, being spirit. They are greater in being and they are glorious. I mean, how many times through Scripture does somebody encounter an angel of God and what's the immediate response of the human heart to seeing that being? To fall down and worship them. To give reverence, to have fear and trembling in their heart. It's because these beings are greater in glory. But they're even greater in power, aren't they? Do you remember the story of Hezekiah when the armies are surrounding Jerusalem And God promises He's going to deliver them. And we read a a small little text in 2 Kings that on that night, an angel of God came down and killed 185,000 of the soldiers. Just one angel. Probably showing a small part of His power there. And we see that all angels are above us in power and being. But here, we're not considering all angels, are we? 
We're not considering Lucifer and the angels that followed him out of heaven. Even though they're great and glorious in power and being, we're considering what Jude calls the elect angels. Those who, by God's grace, were kept in heaven. Who are holy. And they are above us, not just in power and being. They're above us in holiness. These angels have never committed sin in God's sight. They despise sin. Where we swim in it like water because we're surrounded by sinners and our own hearts every day, the angels in heaven are not like that. They are holy in every way that a being, a created being, can be holy. More than that, they're above us in position, aren't they? That's what's meant in our text. They behold the face of our Father who is in heaven. Okay? These angels, like us, we experience God's grace reading His Word and His presence filling us at times. These beings are in the immediate presence of God, beholding His face at all times. And notice the connection here. The immediate presence of God, these angels are in, in order to do His will at all times. Now, think of an illustration of this. Um, Consider a a bully at school. If any of you went to public school, you probably saw bullies or bullied yourself at some point or another. And consider a a mean bully in school going and and shoving children into lockers and locking them. And he does this for many years. Okay, It's a grievous sin that he does. But one day he sees a new kid that may be particularly scrawny, shoves him in a locker and locks it. And he only finds out later that day that that child was actually the son of the President of the United States of America. Okay, We would say, well, why is that a bigger deal? Well, because all the generals of the earth stand in the presence of the President of the United States. They stand in his presence to do his will at any time. And notice what's being said here. The little ones, the disciples of God, okay, they're angels, stand in the presence of God always willing to do His will, and especially to protect the people of God. That should put fear in our hearts, brothers and sisters. I know we don't typically think about angels or demons in our modern materialistic context, but this text tells us there are powerful, great beings standing in God's presence, ready to protect God's people. And to prove that to you, I just want to give us many examples. Three examples for time. In the Old and New Testament, first, I want us to see that in the Old Testament... There are promises of angelic protection. I'm just going to read a couple. You don't need to turn there. Psalm 34, 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fears Him and protects them. Okay? Psalm 91, 11 says, About Christ, but by implication about us as well, for He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. But I think the primary text that I do want you to turn to is in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And as you're turning there again, Christ is proving the exceeding sinfulness of our sin because the angels in heaven protect the church. And so ought we. The angels of God go after and seek sinful members of God's church. And thus, so should we. Hebrews chapter 1. This text is wonderful for our angelology. Angelology. Verse 14 Are not they, that is the angels, all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Why do the angels of God exist? 
One of the primary reasons that they exist is to minister to those who will inherit salvation. They seek after us, brothers and sisters. How they do that, I don't know. But we see that very clearly in our text. If angels, and this is where we need to pay attention, if these angels who are so much higher in power and being and holiness and position minister to the salvation of God's people, how can you and how can I not do likewise? If they condescend to us to do to to worms like us such good, how can we just haphazardly and cavalierly say, well, that's not for me. I'm not going to seek after those who go astray. This wicked carelessness is contrasted with the disposition of angels. And it's meant to prove our sinfulness. Second, this contrast of the love of higher beings is seen in verse 11. But if you look down at your text, especially if you have an ESV, there's not a verse 11 there. Okay? And I've already brought up today, I got tried to get roasted by a King James onlyist by mail this week. This is not proof that our Bibles are wrong. Rather, I want us to see that this is a good text. So, in your Bible, in the ESV, if you have one, it goes from verse 10 to verse 12, but in the King James Version, the New King James Version, and the New American Standard in a footnote, okay, all of them contain, for the Son of Man is come to seek that which is lost. Okay? For the Son of Man is come to seek that which is lost. Now, it's not as if the writers of the ESV are trying to hide this text from us because it's clearly stated in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. Rather, this is probably an addition by scribes putting this in here as a footnote because it goes along with the same context. Okay? This possibly was used as a cross-reference, okay? So the angels seek after those who are lost, and somebody, a scribe, may have put Luke 19.10 in the side so that they would go and say, well, the Son of Man came to seek that which is lost as well, and eventually they came fused together. But regardless of all of that, this should not cause us to doubt our Bibles. Rather, I want us to see that verse 11, as included in the New King James and the King James, Whether it was in the original manuscript or not, it perfectly reflects the intention of our author here and goes with the flow of everything that we should be reading. That is, not only the angels of heaven, but the Son of God Himself does not despise these little ones. You see how that builds on the logic? That the angels of God in heaven, higher and holier than we are, seek after those who are to inherit salvation, and the Son of Man Himself came to seek that which was lost. Now think about that. Even if this text does not deserve to be in Matthew chapter 18, I want to drive that home to us. It would be perfectly logical for us at this point in the sermon to say, but how much more the Son of Man came to seek that which is lost. He willingly left glory and honor in heaven, having the worship of all of God's angels even. Before him, these holy beings. He created the world and everything in it, delighting in the presence of his Father, yet he willingly left his home in heaven and became a servant. Why? To seek those that were lost. To seek those who were lost. He 
willingly again came from bliss and glory to seek lost sinners, you and me. And this can be proven just from a few texts. If you'll turn with me just in Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. Notice what Jesus Christ testifies of Himself seeking lost sinners. Matthew chapter 9. Verses 11 through 13. The Bible tells us, And when the Pharisees saw this, that He was eating with tax collectors and sinners... They said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We turn over a page in chapter 10 and verses 5 through 6. This goes out not just in Jesus' personal ministry, but what he commands to the apostles... He says, these twelve Jesus sent out in verse 5 of chapter 10, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And finally, in chapter 15, we see this as well as he's talking with the Canaanite woman. Verse 24, Jesus answered, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus Christ testifies over and over, and although He's speaking of Israel in particular, we must notice the fact that Jesus' mission here is to seek out lost sheep. Those who are ruined because of their sin and misery. He didn't come to the righteous. Those whom He knew would accept Him because of their own goodness. Rather, He went to lost sheep. He sought out sinners. Paul the Apostle tells us in 1 Timothy 1.15, as we surely know, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the foremost. And brothers, I hope that just this first point, that when we despise one another, it is at contrast and at variance with the heavenly beings, with the angels, and with Jesus Christ Himself. How much of a strong statement or an exclamation point does that add to Christ's command, do not despise one another? This is emphasized and made extremely clear. Angels condescend, and so we have no excuse And we are constrained to follow the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is meant to hem us in, brothers. We are prone to despising one another, but we should not allow ourselves to do it. If Christ came to seek those who were lost, how dare we think of ourselves so highly that we despise the ones whom Christ came to save? But second, not only does this text expose our sinfulness by showing us the contrast of the heavenly beings, it shows our sinfulness by exposing how we value lesser things. I want us to notice that in the parable that's given in Matthew chapter 18. This parable asks a question in verse 12. It says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray? And the answer to that question is implied. Of course he does. And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. 
This text, again, is meant to expose our love for lesser things and how we seek after them. Okay? So, the first thing that we consider here in this text is the monetary value of these sheep. And I tried to do a a search online, like how much is a sheep worth, and it came in between, depending on their age, maybe two to three hundred dollars. Let's just take as an example that this is three hundred dollars per sheep, and that these sheep are worth then thirty thousand dollars a piece. Okay? Imagine, if you will, that you had thirty thousand dollars in your bank account. And $300 of it just went missing one day. You look online, $300 has gone, gone to Panera Bread or something. And you didn't spend $300 on Panera Bread. The question is, what rational person would just let that go without caring about it? I would probably propose to you that all of us would call the bank and try to find out what happened to that money until we found out what happened to it. Right? We'd seek after it. We would seek after it. Who would, not, who would lose 1% of his income and not try to get it back? And that's true. But this text adds something more to that. A shepherd having sheep is not just connected to those sheep because they, they have monetary value to him. A shepherd loves his sheep. We see that throughout the Scripture, don't we? That David even was willing to risk his own life and kill lion and bear to protect his sheep from being consumed by them. Even the parable that Nathan gives, it presumes that in this culture, there's a love for the sheep that a shepherd takes care of. These sheep are like members of the family. Not like your children, like our modern culture would tell us, right? But they're like members of the family. So this man not only had a monetary value to seek after them, but he had a familial bond even with these little animals that he was entrusted with. And so the question comes to us like this. Who in their right mind would not seek to recover 1% of the fortune that they had? And more than that, what if that 1% was connected very intimately and had some sentimental value to us? The point of it is this. We do set apart time and we reschedule things To seek after things like this. We seek after our own monetary interests. We seek after these things. And the Bible doesn't tell us it's wrong to do that. But here's the question, brothers and sisters. How much more valuable are the people of God? We we reschedule our lives to seek after monetary things, but would we do that to seek after a brother and sister that went astray? Would we go to their house and talk to them? This is meant, again, to to beat the dead horse many times. This is meant to expose the exceeding sinfulness of our hearts. We seek after other things. How much more valuable are the people of God? And Jesus shows us here that when He calls us to seek after one another, to bring them back in repentance and faith, He's not calling us to do something extraordinary that's totally outside of our nature. We seek after things all the time to recover them. How much more are the people of God? We always seek after that which we value. That's, a, I think, an inviolable rule. If we value it, we seek it. But the sad reality is that this plainly exposes that we don't value one another as we ought to. We don't set the value upon our brothers and sisters that the Word of God tells us that they are. In fact, I, I, I don't enjoy preaching sermons that just beat us up, but I, I, wanna, I want us to see that this makes us really no better than the scribes and Pharisees. You might recall 
in Matthew chapter 12 that when there was a, a uh, controversy about the Sabbath and Jesus healing on the Sabbath, you might recall the Pharisees came after Him and Christ's response is this. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And while we're not talking about the Sabbath here, I want us to have drilled into our minds, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? How much more valuable is God's people than the things that we usually give ourselves to seek after? Extremely valuable. And I want us to see as well that in verse 13, if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices more over the 99, more over it than the 99 that never went astray. That the motivation in part of that shepherd in seeking is to have joy in bringing that sheep back, right? This reminds us of Luke chapter 15 that tells us that there's more joy with the angels of heaven when one sinner repents, right? But in our hearts, We don't go and seek after that lost sheep, the one that strays from the path, because we don't find joy in it, right? We we don't seek joy in it. Rather, we we look on the the hardness of it, the difficulty of it, the the tension that it's going to cause between other people. And so we don't do it. Instead of focusing on joy, we focus on the difficulty of it. When we don't do that with other aspects of our life and other things that we seek after, we willingly engage in the difficulty because we value it. And this shows, again, it's exceedingly sinful to despise the people of God. It's exceedingly sinful of us not to seek after them to win them back. But there's a third way that Jesus shows us this exceeding sinfulness. Because it's the express will of God to seek after these sheep. Notice with me in verse 14. So, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one, notice that language, one of these little ones should perish. Now, as Calvin is sitting here today, we might say, well, it's the, the will of God is done. Whatever happens on earth and in heaven is the will of the Father in some way. But we, we need to be careful here. This is why systematic theologians throughout time have distinguished between the secret will of God and the revealed will of God. God chooses to operate and work in this world in secret ways that are beyond our control, but here is talking about the revealed will of God. It's not the will of God that any one of these little ones should perish. He has revealed Himself clearly in the pages of the Old and New Testaments that He does not want us to be lackadaisical about seeking after sheep. Now, we see this. You might say, well, where where does it say that? Well, first, it was in what Brother Joey read to us today. Right? God tells us in Ezekiel 33... He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He tells Ezekiel that you need to seek after these people even though you know they're going to reject you. You need to tell them. You need to tell them. Now, we also see it in many passages of Scripture where the Father Himself is described as a shepherd to His people. You might think of Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You might think of Psalm 95.7 that we read this morning. This says, For He is our God... And notice, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand, right? But even thinking further about my own sinfulness and your own sinfulness, Psalm 119, verse 176, the last verse of Psalm 119 
It says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. We see it's not the will of the Father for any of these to perish because throughout the Old Testament, he says that he is the shepherd that seeks after sheep. So it's therefore not his will that we should do the same thing. But how much is this more fully portrayed in the ministry of Jesus Christ? Just as everything about God's nature is more fully displayed in the coming of Christ, so His seeking after lost sheep is most fully displayed. In verses 16 and 17 in John 3, we know these verses. For God so loved the world, what? That He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Notice verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through Him might be saved. The point of all of this put together is that we are often not willing to seek after straying sheep. And that attitude is extremely sinful and contrary to the heavenly angels, to the Son of God Himself, and even the Father's Will. Willingness to seek after lesser things also is meant to shine a spotlight on this and show us that our attitudes and our affections towards one another, brothers and sisters, aren't right. We're tempted to despise one another. I want us to to work Matthew 18 into our heart and into the culture of this church that we will not allow any intellectual excuse to come into my mind or my heart that I will despise my brother and sister. I love them so much, I'll seek after them. All of this is aimed at convincing us of our sinfulness. But it's not meant to convince us of our sinfulness that we would live in despair. But as all the law of God is meant to do, it's meant to drive us to Jesus Christ. We talked about the law in Romans chapter 7 already, that... God uses the law to expose the exceeding sinfulness of the law. When I agree the law is good... And then I sin, I must say I'm exceedingly sinful. But that causes me not to go to the law to try harder, but to go to Jesus Christ and seek His grace and forgiveness. We must not only be convinced of the exceeding sinfulness, but secondly, we must prepare ourselves to seek one another. And the first step in that must be through faith and repentance. It must be. I know the temptation... To to read a text like this, and especially when you come to a fuller understanding of it, and say to yourself, I'm such a sinner, I have no hope. But that's not the purpose of this text. If we were to be logically consistent with that, we would say that no Christian's ever been saved ever. We go throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we see in the book of Romans, Philippians, 1 Corinthians, and many other places, God's people are always tempted to despise one another. We don't value one another as we ought. And so therefore, we are not to drive into ourselves and say, I'm hopeless. We're to go to Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you know when he hung on that cross? That he hung on the cross and was punished because you despised your brother and sister? He paid for that. He was considered, even though he came to seek the lost, when he was on that cross, he was considered one that despised his brothers and sisters. He was considered one who did not and refused to seek after his brothers and sisters. For you, that you'd be forgiven of that. That you'd be forgiven for that. We have grace given to us in the cross of Jesus Christ that when we come to Him repentant of our sins, we can know that we are forgiven of our sins. 
We must recognize this full and free forgiveness given in Jesus Christ and experience the freedom of not being under God's condemning wrath, but to seek to go after God and after this commandment with His power. Because I can't do it on my own. I can't bring back a lost sinner. It's only Christ through His Word that can do that. And I hope you see how this prepares us for next week and seeing the method. We must have an attitude in our heart that I can't despise this brother or sister. I have to go after them. I'm not going after them in a cold methodology. I'm going after them to seek them, but I'm only seeking them by God's power and grace. How do we do that? As our time is drawing to a close, we are called to seek after one another in faith and repentance. And I would say even maybe more succinctly to you, we are called in this text to put off hatred and to put on love for one another. And how do we do that? I know that I am, I am inclined not to love my brother and sister. I'm inclined to love everything else in this world but them. And the first thing that we must do is devalue. Is devalue what we typically value the most. Devalue the things of this world. To say that another way, we are to read the Bible and see how the Bible puts value on certain things and try to conform our thinking and our minds to that. And that takes work, brothers. Matthew 6, uh, again, Matthew talks about this very plainly, doesn't he? And I'll read this only because it is uh, exceedingly appropriate and strong text. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus speaks of devaluing the world very clearly. Notice in verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Do you desire for your heart to be more with your brothers and sisters and to love them? Then you must learn to devalue the things of the world. And even further down in verse 24, Christ says very clearly, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot love God and money. You cannot, I would put on top of that, you cannot value your brothers and sisters, how God values them, while you're valuing the things of the world to a greater degree. Those things don't go together. We must devalue the things of this world, but we must learn to value God's people. We're to value all men. Now, I, I say this because if we're to value all men as made in God's image, then certainly we're to value God's people to a higher degree. I, notice how we're to value all men in James chapter 3. If I go a little long, brothers and sisters, forgive me, but I've got some to get through here. James chapter 3, we are told to value all of God's creation, all God's created people, not just Christians. He tells us, Notice verses 9 and 10 of James chapter 3. With it, that is the tongue, that is full of deadly poison and is a restless evil. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the image of God. Now maybe that doesn't stand out to us as something significant right at the moment. But think about that with me. Again, imagine... President of the United States, and it's hard in America to use these analogies, but it's the best I have right now. If we, if we say, in the, in the presence of the President of the United States, we give him honor and glory, but then we go into our house and wherever we see a picture of him, we spit on him, right? That would be an obvious 
insincerity in our heart that we don't truly honor the one that we pretend to honor. And James is telling us when we bless God our Father with our lips, but turn around to a person that's made in God's image and curse them, this is, this is cursing God the Father. It's His image that is in this person. We aren't valuing that person how God tells us to value them. But how much more are we to value the people of the church? And brothers and sisters, I just give you a brief few things to consider as we did last week. Every person in this room that believes in Jesus Christ on that final day is going to judge angels. These beings that are high and glorious that we have already talked about, we are going to be elevated to such a position in the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to judge those creatures. And your brother and sister is going to be in that position. We're going to inherit the earth. We're going to rule the earth. I think maybe the strongest is that when we read in the Old Testament this morning, Psalm 95, Whenever, if you look up the word inheritance in the Old Testament, you might be shocked. It doesn't refer to the inheritance we receive, but we're a heritage of God. We are the heritage of God. That is, God views us so highly that He inherits us to some degree that I don't completely understand. We're called the inheritance of God in these texts. We're sons of the Father, brothers of Jesus Christ, bride of the King. And we must have these things in our heart so that when we are tempted to despise the person sitting next to us, we say, no, I'm not thinking biblically about that person. He's a child of the king. He's a child of the king. Does he have sins? Of course he does. Does she have sins? Of course they do. But I must treat them with reverence and honor and respect. And the question is, do we believe all that? Doubtless we stumble in many ways, brothers. And if you are a believer here, you desire to love what God loves and hate what He hates. And again, the question is, how do we do this? We, we grow to devalue the world and value one another. Lastly, how do we do that? I would say by renewing our minds according to the means of grace. We must recognize first and foremost that I cannot change my mind in this way by human instruments and human means. I cannot, in my fleshly work, and my fleshly thinking, do this. I must give myself to the means that God says He's going to work. If He works spiritually in us to grow us, I have to look to see how He works in His Word and give myself to those things. Now, the first thing we do is private, and we know that. I don't even have to say it probably in our culture. That we need to be reading the Bible, believing it. And if we're tempted to despise our brothers, we need to go to texts that tell us who God's people are and conform our minds to those things. We need to be praying about them. And while these things are absolutely necessary and indispensable, they're insufficient by themselves. They're insufficient. Because God, in the Word of God, tells us that we grow the most not by what we do in private, but what we do together. And again, just as we talked about in the introduction, these things can't be taken separate. They, they inform one another. You can't just have public worship without private. But public worship of God is spoken about in His Word as a particular means where He grows His people. I, I just want us to turn to one familiar text, Ephesians chapter 4. text that I've seen the, the depth and the value of it more and more as we've gone over the doctrine of the church. And the Holy Scripture, I I just want us to notice in Ephesians chapter 4 how Paul the Apostle tells us that we grow together. I'm going to read verses 11 through 16. Now, it says, And He, that's Christ, the risen Christ, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to do what? 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God. How do we grow into mature Christianity? It's through the teaching offices of the church, brothers and sisters. So, in verse 14, that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful seams. Notice, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head. How do we grow in love for one another? How do we grow in truth? It's by the body of Christ speaking love to one another, speaking the truth in love to one another. It's by being together. I can pretend that I love my brothers and sisters if I never come to church and I'm just in my house with my Bible. It's very easy for me to do that. It's much harder when we come together and we, we grate on each other at times. Notice, verse 16, lastly. From whom the whole body, Christ, from whom? The whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working property, properly, makes the body to grow that it builds itself up in love. Do you see that? The God in particular says it's when the body operates together as the body that we grow up in love. Not when I'm by myself. Okay, When we're by ourselves, we grow. But God in particular shows that we grow when we're together. So, brothers and sisters, we are called to put on love by doing these things. We're called to value one another, devalue the things of this world, because despising brothers and sisters in Christ is exceedingly sinful. It's exceedingly sinful. We ought to have it in our hearts that we love one another so much we're going to seek after them that they might be found. And as we come to the communion table today as well, we see... The primary way that Jesus Christ did this. Jesus Christ left His home in heaven to seek the lost, but He did not stop at preaching the gospel. He, he died for sinners. He died for them to seek them. His body was broken. His blood was shed that we might have perfect and full forgiveness, giving us every warrant to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brother Joey, would you come forward?